Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today it's episode eight of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, The Elysian Kingdom. I'm Michael Merrick. Now our regular Academy faculty member Rodney Cup is on a short sabbatical. He'll return next time. So this week we have a guest faculty member. Rodney and I have said several times that we are real college professors, and our guest is the director of the film production program at our school, Professor Michael Wyatt. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks for having me. This is really fun. Mike is an award-winning film scriptwriter and producer and director, and he's also a Star Trek fan. So mm-hmm. he'll have some insights about the production values of Strange New Worlds, as well as maybe the writing and the story arcs and the character development. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been a fan for a long time, but I, I have to admit, though, I am nowhere near the level of learned fan that, <laughs> but, that you and Rodney are, of course. But I used to go to Star Trek conventions and the like. And, um, of course, you know, really for me, what, you know, everything that I watch is about kind of disassembling it. I mean, I think they, they always joke that that's kind of the thing with film professors is that we, we want to, you know, disassemble everything as writers and directors, and especially in the case of Star Trek production design. So this is going yeah. to be fun. In, in this business, you can't just watch for enjoyment. You have to <laughs> always be thinking about how are they doing that or why are they doing that and all that. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I think especially too, and, and Star Trek is, is delightful because we come to it with such great production design. I think, you know, there's a lot of fandoms, but I think this is one in which the creators care an awful lot about the fans. And and because of that, there is extensive production design and great, great care that goes into it. So it's wonderful to see that, especially when we don't see it in many other things, many other fandoms. Yeah, I think it's definitely true that the production staff of Strange New Worlds and all of the other current Star Trek series are very sensitive to the fans. They know the original source material and they're faithful to it. So uh, officially first on the podcast today, I have a brief summary of the Strange New Worlds episode, episode eight, The Elysian Kingdom. And it's kind of to refresh your memory. If you haven't seen the episode, there are spoilers here. Uh, So you may want to watch first, but uh, in a lot of ways, this summary is designed to refresh your memory if you're listening down the road a bit, not just right in the first few days after the episode premieres. Dr. Mbenga is reading to his daughter, Rukia, who is temporarily out of the transporter buffer where she usually is to delay her terminal disease. She likes her father reading to her, but it's always the same fantasy storybook and she wishes the ending was different. Meanwhile, Enterprise has been studying a nebula and when it's time to leave, the ship can't get away. Ortegas is injured, but when Mbenga gets to the bridge, he finds it transformed into the story from the book he's been reading. He's the king. Enterprise is his kingdom. The control room is his throne room. Pike is a fawning chamberlain. La'an is kind of an airhead princess. And Ortegas is a royal guard. Meanwhile, Uhura and Spock are on the other side. And these two sides are struggling to locate a magical artifact called the Mercury Stone. It turns out that only Mbenga and Hammer realize that things are strange, maybe because Hammer has a telepathic ability. Eventually, they realize that it is Rukia herself that is the magical artifact, and the nebula is a conscious entity 
who's making Rukia's fantasy story, her version of it, come true. Her disease is gone, but the entity, contacted via Hemmer's telepathy, says if the girl leaves, her terminal disease will return. The entity, who Rukia has named Deborah after her mother, invites Rukia to stay when Enterprise leaves. The girl chooses to stay, is transformed into light, but a few moments later returns as an adult woman to tell Mbenga that he made the right decision. She's safe and happy. Nobody on the Enterprise crew except Mbenga remembers what happened during those missing five hours. When he looks at the children's book, it has the new ending. Mm. So, Mike, our next section of the podcast is usually just simply talking about the things we notice that we want to call attention to. We'll talk about the writing and the themes and the messages, morals to the story a little later. But do you have some first thoughts about this episode? I really liked the episode. And I, I think probably one of the most clever parts of this is it, it harkens back to the holodeck type episodes that we had in the other series. But of course, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that technology didn't exist at this time correct, in the, correct, the Star yeah. Trek mythos. So because of that, this is a really fun way to be able to have that type of experience for this crew, which is really fun. And it is a way to get kind of away from that. And I think from the standpoint of production design, and if we go back clear back to the 1960s, of course, Star Trek really utilized a small number of sets to reduce its production cost. And they've been able to, to keep this for years and years. So if we look at these sets, especially, they are the same sets we see every episode, but they've just dressed them differently. From the standpoint of production design, that really innovative use of that, that we had in the 1960s still exists today. And I'm sure that people, they're, they're, the executive producers love the fact they can keep their costs down by being able to do this. But also, I think it's really clever because it's tough that we have to be able to create this other world, but yet kind of keep our feet in the Star Trek mythos at the same time. So it is really clever. Also, I've noticed something, too, that it is, even though we are in this kind of different world, it is shot in the very traditional Star Trek way. And because of that, it is, it allows us footing into this other fabricated reality versus our Star Trek mythos. We're able to exist in both. And because of that, it is a really clever trick of production design. And with that, I don't know if you noticed, but the costuming is fantastically good. Beautiful. Yeah, and there's a, an after show about Star Trek called The Ready Room that Will Wheaton hosts. And mm -hmm. he did an interview this week with the costume designers and and how elaborate it is. And some of the things that go on the outside of the clothing is 3D printed. And even the crown that Mbengo was mm -hmm. wearing is 3D printed. And you know, they put a lot of, a lot of effort into this. Mm -hmm. And it, it is. And actually, you know, on that, not to get too distracted, but we did a, a science fiction production this past year and we 3D printed all of the weapons and stuff were actually 3D printed. Yeah. That's become a, a big mainstay in the industry too. I was most impressed with the costume Uhura was wearing with the big like polypropylene clear yeah. shoulder uh -huh. ornaments yeah. unbelievably ornate. So, I mean, that was really impressive. And But I think one of the things that was most fun for me was that the characters exhi exhibited personality traits so opposite of what they play 
yeah. and the show to say, you know, Uhura is kind of this <laughs> evil queen was hilarious. I had so much fun. And the captain is a coward was so fun. It was just, it, but I think it was just so counter. And I think it's, it's the thing that, yes, of course, space exploration is a serious business, but there is this comedic aspect that allows us a reprieve from the very serious nature of that. And that's great writing. I mean, at least for me, that's great writing because especially, you know, when you're writing series like this, it's a tough thing to do, but to have that episode of comedic reprieve, especially between really serious episodes is, is just really fun. So. Yeah. You know, they told us that one of the episodes earlier this season, Spock and Muck, was a comedic episode. And it had, I think, subtle uh, comedic elements. But this episode was much more overtly comedic. And they didn't really preview it that way, which maybe makes it more of a surprise and more interesting for mm -hmm. uh, for the audience anyway. But, you mm -hmm. know, Pike is clearly the comic relief. Oh, absolutely. Uh, pretty much all of the characters have comedic lines and the comedic situations. And I think it speaks to the quality of cast. And I have to admit, of course, I'm a little new to this, this series. My daughter is a big Star Trek fan. She watches lots of things all the time. And coming to this, I was really impressed with the quality of cast. And this really shows the versatility of a cast that can really go in a lot of different directions. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, Spock ends up kind of a, you know, a, a handsome bad guy and <laughs> which is really funny you know it's it's yeah. it's very counter to what we usually see captain pike just you know hilarious you know which is you know it, it's it's really fun it's 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 fun to see actors stretch out like that yeah regular listeners to our podcast have heard me use a term that i actually coined in a fan group way back in the 1990s to refer to what is essentially a star trek formula plot and the term is Technobabble space phenomenon causes goofy side effects, a formula plot, which has been, I mean, all through Star Trek, you see that so often. I would say that this Strange New Worlds episode uses this plot formula, a strange phenomenon that's the sentient nebula and what happens after that, which would be the goofy side effects. But I hurry to say that just because a Star Trek episode uses this plot formula, doesn't make it a bad episode. It, you know, look at yesterday's Enterprise in Next Generation or even The City on the Edge of Forever, which started with just an unexplained temporal distortion. The question is not, is it a formula plot? Is it a cliched plot? But what do we do with the, with the idea? And I think they, they did well here. A few notes that I want to make. Hemmer talked about the Boltzmann brain, and that is a real thing. It was a thought experiment of a 19th century Austrian physicist who held that it is more likely for a single brain to form spontaneously than for the universe to be born in the way that physicists of the time believed, which is fine, but I think more to the point, and if I were writing, I would have drawn on recent science that has found that gas clouds in space contain amino acids and some of them are warm enough, the clouds themselves are warm enough that theorists believe life could form within such clouds without requiring a planet. And that is pretty recent, recent science. Although I'm reminded in 1957, an astronomer uh, named Fred Hoyle, a British astronomer, wrote a science fiction novel that got a lot of positive reviews at the time, 
called the Black Cloud about a space cloud that was an intelligent organism and how it came to Earth and people interacted with it. I have to say also that this episode reminded me a lot of the original series episode Metamorphosis, in which you remember there's a sentient cloud, sort of a cloud, the companion that rescues Zephram Cochran because she's lonely. And if she leaves the planetoid, she will die. In both episodes, uh, Metamorphosis and here the Elysian Kingdom, the human friend of the cloud decides to remain behind. I don't know if that was a direct inspiration, but uh, it did remind me a lot of the original series uh, uh, episode. Mike, being a film writer and producer and director, I want to talk with you about the color palette of the ship, mm -hmm. uh, particularly when it's in the fantasy part of the story. It's very yellow with some orange thrown in. And of course, the regular Enterprise sets, particularly Sick Bay that we saw outside the fantasy scenes, are very blue. And I think mm -hmm. blue, you, you, you can tell me more, but I think blue has a connotation of high tech and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the warm colors, which more signal emotion, mm -hmm. emphasize maybe the fantasy uh, aspects and give it that, mm -hmm. that borderline unreal feel. But what did you think of the color palette that they used in the episode? Well, I think without getting in too terribly deep, because I could go down a rabbit hole here, but I think when we look at Star Trek series, especially since the advent of digital, when we look at that, they are very, very thought out in that, for example, if we look at like some of the series, the ships, because of the timeframes, they want them to look a little bit different from each other. So they don't actually all look alike. And I really love this because time period technology wise, they've done a wonderful job. And these are very, very thought out decisions that go into pre-production for extensive periods of time. But I think if we go back and I'm going to go back to next generation for a little bit, one of the things, especially with the holodeck, they had all of those, they were all colored differently. Every time there was a, a holodeck adventure, they were colored differently. And it, a lot of that is they were coloring to the genre, but it is very tricky because we do have to, as I mentioned earlier, kind of keep our feet in the Star Trek world. And I think what's unique in this episode is they have colored it in the, these warm tones, which are really kind of more like, a fantasy film, mm -hmm. you know, especially a mythical fantasy film. I mean, the color is more like maybe Lord of the Rings than probably Star Trek at, at times. But because of that, the sets and the costumes are keeping us in that world, as I'd kind of mentioned before. But I would venture to say if they have another situation, a lot of it is matching it really to the genre of fiction that you're stepping into. And they did a really good job with this. And you're right. It has some warmer tones. And I noticed the one scene, especially when the, the little girl is with her father explaining, hey, there's an entity and whatever, they're, they're in the room. That is the time that there's that convergence of color that we see and that snapping back into reality. It, it, it really is thought out. So a high five to whomever is the production designer on this. I think they sat down and did a really good job in design. Now, in days of past, when television was shot on film, mm -hmm. they would have done color like that with lights and maybe mm -hmm. gels over the lights and things. But in the digital mm -hmm. age, uh, that can all be adjusted in, in software. And mm -hmm. would, would you guess that for this episode, that the scenes were shot 
in probably fairly regular light and then the color tones were adjusted in software? Or would you imagine that they are using yellow light sources and even the candles and things like that, which ordinarily on film, a candle will be very red, but these even the candles were glowing yellow here. I have a real romance with film. I mean, physical film celluloid. And because of that, I would venture to say this is shot digitally, of course. I, yes. I believe it's the Ari Alexa Mini is the camera of choice in this case. And because of that, it is a combination of lighting sources. So what you would have to do is you would have to light it with these warm lights. And then, of course, then post-production color it to get it to be what you need it to be. We should note that you're uh, joining us from a public location. So that's why there's a little background noise. There. <laughs> there's a little background. I'm, I'm yeah. traveling. I'm, I'm visiting my parents. And because of that, to have a, a space away from them to do this yeah, was awesome. a little bit public space. But regardless, though, that digital colorization, the power of it is pretty great. You can simulate a lot of different palettes in there as well. Um, I would honestly, you know, I would love to see an episode that kind of harkens back to the original Star Trek series, which is cropped into that four, three aspect ratio, colored like it was shot on Kodak stock and, you know, really, really play with that in some ways. But I'm well, a silly person. And a lot of the lighting of the original series was notable because color was new. Star Trek was on NBC, NBC connected to RCA had color before the other commercial networks and they mm -hmm. were really going out of their way to have noticeable colors. So you'll, yeah. Prior to that color, of course, worked for film and was designed for film. And then we had to go ahead and look at stocks that were good for reproduction for television. And it took quite a while for that to really get put together. I mean, the original Star Trek, I don't want to get too derailed. It's a pretty bold venture for television at that time. And I know there were a lot of people who had their hands in getting it on the air, but I mean, I think doing that, and then of course the giant task of how the heck do you make this work is tough. Um, but I mean, that's filmmaking. I mean, it's pushing boundaries, you know, that's what that is. I have a handful of things I want to note, and most of these are, are fairly minor, but I want to note, I was struck by Mbenga using a mortar and pestle Mm -hmm. which like goes back to previous centuries, you know, you, you put something in there and you, and you crush it. But in the 23rd century, it's using a mortar and pestle. Really? That really kind of surprised me. On the other hand, did you notice the medical scanner device he was using to aim at other people with the spinning thing inside? That is a lot like McCoy's. It's physically a little larger, but it's a lot like McCoy's. And I think it shows yet again that in reimagining the ship and the props and the characters for this series, the producers are still being very sensitive to the original series. It's new, it's modern design, but so many things are inspired by, by the original series. They made a point in this episode about Pike using the term hit it, which we've heard him say before. I watched the menagerie the other day and in the footage from the cage at the end of the episode, when Enterprise is finally ready to leave Talos 4, he says, engage. He doesn't say hit it. He says, engage, which really kind of went on to become Picard's famous catch line. So I don't know if we're going to see Pike change his catch line from hit it to engage at some point before the end of the series. Who knows? Ortegas had a really good sword fight, but as often happens 
on TV. She was fighting multiple bad guys who came at her one by one. There's a brief scene, I think, early of her fighting two at the same time, and then she's eventually captured, I think, by three of them. But but mostly it was one-on-one, which is way easier in terms of sword fighting to fight one person rather than two or three. It's probably easier on the stuntmen also. But if you go back and watch any of the old cowboy TV series, the bad guys always take on take their turns fighting the good guy. It's rarely really ganging up unless maybe the script requires that they capture the good guy. But usually you see that in, in the original series Star Trek and all the cowboy shows and almost any other time the good guy is fighting a group of bad guys. They come at the good guy one at a time. And I couldn't help notice that. Did you notice the camera angles of Uhura as she was playing the evil queen, Mike? I noticed that there was a lot of things that seemed very tight, very handheld, yeah. also to a little lower in some, yeah, some I, situations. I think some were very low. So the camera is low mm-hmm. looking up at her, which mm-hmm. really emphasizes her power and, and yeah. authority. Change know, that. Some lower looking angles. upward emphasizes power, looking downward emphasizes lack, lack of power. Mm-hmm. I think um, I was very distracted by the fant- the ornate costuming <laughs> in that. <Yeah. laughs> so I know that those are the rare instances I've, in the I've, cinematography. I, yeah, I think I've watched the episode four times here in preparation mm-hmm. for, uh, for, mm-hmm. for our recording. Finally, for this part of the podcast, I want to note that fantasy stories almost always have some sort of artifact at the core of the story. I mean, obviously you have the One Ring and the Silmarillion in Tolkien. They're obvious examples. Terry Brooks, uh, The Sword of Shannara was the first of his Shannara series. Usually they're magical in in some way, these artifacts. The Genie's Lamp, the Holy Grail in the uh, Arthurian legends, not to mention in Indiana Jones. So the Mercury Stone as an element or as kind of the linchpin of, of this fantasy story fits perfectly with the bigger picture of fantasy stories. So are we ready to move on, Mike, and talk about meaning? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Okay. Um, so in, the, yeah, in this section of the podcast, we talk about the messages the writers and the producers wanted us to take away from this episode and how about if i give some thoughts and then and then you take your turn and then we can compare notes and things i thought that the overall theme of this episode is writing your own story Mm -hmm. when rukia tells her father she doesn't like the way the story ends he tells her that she will grow up and write her own stories and this is echoed at the end of the episode where the adult rukia tells her father that he has his own life to live and his own stories to create. Now, last week on the podcast, I was by myself, but I talked about the boxes that society tends to put people in. And it's based on politics and race and gender identity and and probably lots of other factors too. But I think that writing your own stories means not accepting those boxes that other people want to put us in, not living the way others want us to, but but defining ourselves. And as I watched, Mike, I, I think it's important that Mbenga supported his daughter as she made her own decisions about her life. Now, particularly in the LGBTQ context, Mike, you and I have both had students who did not have the support 
of their families, about their decisions, about their identities and orientations, not to mention lots of other contexts of young people and families mm-hmm. and friends who, who make decisions that, that the others don't think they should, do or do not go to college, do or do not get a certain kind of job their parent wants them to have. So mm-hmm. I think Mabenga's actions are an important part of the message of this episode in supporting his daughter's choices about her story, which in effect mean choices about her life mm-hmm. going forward. I think you and I probably took away a lot of the same thing from this. Um, I, I was looking at this and that my immediate thought was selflessness, which I think is a, a major theme in the, the episode. He is literally going to the ends of the universe for his daughter. I mean, in, yeah. in this particular case and hoping beyond hope that, that there is a cure for her. And I, I think especially being able to embrace that this is you know, what is best because he has to let go of her. Cause I mean, the, the truth is he's going to leave and she is going to yeah. be there, you know, and for someone to separate themselves from someone they love for their own well being, I think is very difficult. But when we look at that as a theme and I, I, I that was one of the themes that I, I definitely said was, was selflessness, but also hope because he is, at no time does he really, I don't know if it's denial, but he, he does not want to acknowledge her death, the possibility of her death. He is just like, you know, and I think in the prior episodes, he talks about the infinite knowledge of space and exploration and that there must be a way. And then I think, you know, that the writing your own story is one's destiny is may not necessarily be written, you know, or what we perceive as one's destiny. Um, there were really, in his mind, probably only two options, her life or her death, not this other existence of which she ends up choosing. So writing one's own end or one's ending in this particular case was quite different. And I think it, it speaks to Star Trek in that the realm of possibilities is infinite. I was surprised that they wrapped up this subplot this storyline quite so soon you know often often in a show a character has you know a challenge whatever it is i've watched more than one police show in which one of the officers is trying to solve the death of a loved one and it Mm -hmm. takes several seasons to get to that point sometimes not till the very end of of the series Mm -hmm. and i was imagining that this that this story arc for hammer would at least last into another season or two. Right. So I was a little surprised that they wrapped it so soon. Maybe mm-hmm. when they were writing, they weren't sure that there was going to be another season and they wanted to make sure that it wasn't left hanging, but it surprised me a little bit. Did you notice though, they didn't wrap it up very tightly. And that's something that I thought about a little bit as it was going through. Cause I was originally thinking, well, okay, so this happens, but we don't know much about the entity itself or how powerful the entity is. Is this something that could reappear at a different place in space? Is it something that could pop up? We don't know. I mean, there's well, a lot and, of things and there. And Rukia herself said, told her father, I'm sure we'll meet again. Of course. So, so that opens the door to coming back to the nebula, or like you say, mm-hmm. maybe the nebula or the entity contained within the nebula is able to travel. It's very heartfelt. And I, I, that's something I love about Star Trek though, is it's, it's very, very heartfelt, but something, and this is maybe 
I don't mean to be a, a little bit off topic, but something that I've noticed, um, there's another space fantasy series that is doing something a little bit different is that because their canon is as tight as Star Trek's canon is, they are having these small limited series where they're able to have things that like, well, there were plot holes and things that we're fixing in these series, which is wonderful. And it shores things up and it makes things good. Star Trek, because the canon is, I'll call it, I'll say tighter. Um, they're able to actually have to go back and, and have these rich stories that evolve from characters we already know, or like Dr. Becca, create these new things that exist inside. And I think yeah. one of the clever things about this series is that we get the taste of, I know a little bit about this, but now I'm getting the details and it's filling in the canon. And I, 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 for me, that's a lot of the attraction. So when I find something, especially being more of a casual Star Trek fan, when I find something that I can identify, I'm like, oh, I can identify that. And then being able to have it fill in some of yeah. these spaces or remind me of things that I, I don't remember. It, it makes it that much more fun. Number one, it's okay to say the other franchise is Star Wars. <laughs> We, we, we all know what you're talking about. Uh, I also wanted to mention to you that, I, I mean, often in the dialogue, there are just references, maybe a planet name or something that uh -huh. someone who doesn't know just wouldn't even notice. But I heard an interview with a writer who, and, and I'm not sure which series they were talking about, but the scripts for the writers, the scripts of past Star Trek are online and, and keyword searchable. Yeah. So if they need a reference, they can just go into, in effect, the entire script database, I think, mm -hmm. or I, I think this writer was talking about the original series. And the other parts of the production team, I think, are very sensitive to mm -hmm. things that fit in. Now, on the other hand, you know, we know that the Gorn are going to be bad guys, ongoing bad guys, apparently. And I happened to see the so fun. original series episode Arena last night. Mm -hmm. And there were times where Spock in, in Arena, in the original series episode Arena, should have said, oh, the Gorn, I know all about them. Mm -hmm. Or last time this happened, we did this, and mm -hmm. he didn't. So, yeah, they're 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 nudging a little bit there. Um, little bit, there were a couple yeah. of times where you can say, well, that expression on Spock's face says he's remembering his past experiences with the Gorn. But yeah, I think you're right that largely they're trying to fit in to the continuity rather than create something new or something that mm -hmm. goes a different a different direction. Well, and I, I think on that storyline, I don't mean to get distracted as well, though, too. I think one thing the writers have really, really done is the fear, the fear of the people who've already interacted with the Gorn is, is really written in well, because you see how panicked people who are, you know, the characters are who've dealt with the Gorn. Because yeah. I'd never really thought much about the Gorn, you know, and then when you see this, it's like, oh, she's really, really frightened. And then when you see the, you know, those things, I mean, that's something that, I mean, like for me, as more of a casual viewer, I never realized, I mean, they're much more afraid of them than almost anything start yes. other and, than maybe the Borg, but. Yeah, and, and I, I imagine we're going to reimagine the Gorn some. They're not going to be the slow walking guy in the rubber suit that, that we saw in the original series, but, yeah, but that's okay. I, that's, you know, that's, that's refining, that's, that's, that's improving. I, I so, could imagine there'll be very expensive 3D design models. Could well, could well be, could well be. 
There's also a theme in this episode of science versus magic. And even Hemmer uh, mentioned at one point the magic of science. And I'm wondering if this may be inspired by, I mean, right now in the United States, there's a considerable anti-science mindset. My uninformed opinion is as valid as your years of empirical research-based knowledge. And in this episode, science is contrasted with magic. And you note science wins, which I think is in keeping of the long-term Star Trek theme of science as a way of solving problems. Mm, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Because knowledge, it is the pursuit of knowledge is one of the major themes, of course, yeah. in Star Trek. And I think, I mean, as, as academics, it's probably one of the reasons we're so attracted to it. Yeah. When Hemmer first learns about Rukia's terminal condition, did you note his first words? His first words were, let me help. And that echoes the city on the edge of forever in which Kirk quotes a future author who recommends the words, let me help as being even better than I love you. So I don't think that that was an accident that Hemmer said, let me help. And uh, Mike, uh, uh, Rodney and I usually like to try to determine the meaning of the episode title each week and uh, the Elysian Kingdom. At face value, it's just the name of the book Mbenga is reading to his daughter. But in Greek mythology, the Elysian Fields were the resting place of heroes, and it was considered to be an idyllic place. In the Odyssey, Homer says that it's a place where heroes lead an easier life than anywhere else in the world, for in Elysium there falls not rain, not hail, nor snow, but Oceanus, that's the ocean surrounding the world, Oceanus breathes ever with a west wind that sings from the sea and gives fresh life to all. And that's basically what happens to Rukia mm -hmm. when she goes to live in the cloud with Deborah, the, the cloud entity. She finds herself in, in an idyllic place that is just suited to her needs. Well, and I think also one of the things here is, and this is going to be interesting for, for Dr. Benga in this, is that what is the storyline going to be like now with him? That, that was the thing, because there is, because of this, there is such great peace that comes from this. And I think that's something there, that, they're, that these two characters are very much more at peace than they were prior. So, and because of that, it, I'm very interested in what that story is going to become. But I think he is likely to also experience a feeling of loss. Oh, I would and, agree with that. You know, yeah. And he will know that she's in a good place, so he's not concerned for her, but it's like... Well, at least I've heard people say that, that when we go to a funeral, it's not really for the person who's died. It's for those of us who are still yeah, here it's to grieve, help our feelings and to grieve. And I, I could see him feeling a loss, not feeling something bad has happened to Rukia, but his own loss, because now he doesn't have that family connection anymore. We don't know anything about the mother, whether the mother is still in the picture or not. And we may see that going forward. Yeah. I think as a writer, I would see this as a challenge. <laughs> I, me, I'd probably go dark with it and write, well, he's just having a heck of a time getting through this. You know, I mean, that's as me as a writer, that's what I would probably do. But, you know, one of the things in Star Trek, especially, is the characters are incredibly resilient. I mean, you, you would see, you know, at the death of a, of a character and they, they've got to do their duty and they move forward. 
And I think um, it would be very interesting to see how the writers broach that in coming episodes. And I mean, right now, I think only Una knows about Rukia. So that's right. Are, are others going to find out? Again, one of the long-term fundamentals of Star Trek is that the crew is a family. All the way back to the beginning, Gene Roddenberry did not want crew members sniping each other and being mad and, and having confrontations and things, which is something you see in so many TV series today. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up on Star Trek, I don't really like that kind of TV series. Sure. But what kind of support will he get? Is he going to tell everyone about the missing five hours? And as they learn about what happened, are they going to, in turn, give him, give him support? Well, and he's obviously violated many Star Trek regulations, probably, <laughs> or Starfleet yeah, regulations, probably. So I don't know. But Captain Pike is, is I don't know. I, haven't, I don't, I don't want to say he's be quickly becoming one of my favorite captains, but I really like his kind of free form. You know, I and think, it is psycho. Yeah, I think in all Star Trek series, the captain in particular is a, is a product of the times. Jim Kirk was in the mold of all of the cowboy heroes. Um, Absolutely. You know, who had more or less had a love interest every week and had lots of fist fights and things. Although behind the scenes, supposedly he was a scholar and read the classics of literature and things. But in many ways, he was the cowboy hero of the 1960s. Picard was a different kind of captain. Next Generation was your Star Trek series. How would you characterize Picard as a leader? This is going to be very probably counter to what a lot of other Star Trek fans. I always saw him as kind of a military man, very much. This is duty. This is obligation. This is the prime directive. And we are very, you know what I mean? I saw him very much that way and very selfless. I mean, he, you know, especially, you know, after the Borg situation and those things, very selfless. I mean, pretty much pushing down any type of thing, you know, which I think he suffered for much later in his life, as, you know, we've seen. Yeah. But I think, you know, it, it is different. You know, as, as a leader, he was more collaborative. He was more interested in what oh, yeah. the others on his staff thought. He either never or rarely lost his temper and I think, you know, he, he was a vision of what kind of leader we wanted at that time. I think yeah, I if, you, if you just read textbooks about management and leadership today, mm -hmm. uh, I think you would see Pike in them. I think the kind mm -hmm. of leader Pike is reflects what we look for today in the 2020s mm -hmm. of, of a good, effective leader of an organization. As I've talked with Rodney over its 77 podcast episodes now, you know, mm -hmm. I often find lessons about leadership in Star Trek. Yeah. If you add up which of the captains would you most want to work for and which would you want to mm -hmm. work for least, I think Pike is probably going to end up near the top for a lot of people today, yeah. but it's because of his leadership style. Well, and I like, I think like the, the fact he loves to cook is very endearing, you know, yep. and that he likes to cook for crew and, you know, there's which something you, about that. Which you like to do also, right? <laughs> I do. I love to cook for people. Your cooking is all over your Facebook page. Yeah, it is. But I mean, I think when you, when you cook for someone, it shows you care about them. And I think that's something that we have in that, you know, those dinners are not just having dinner, you know, from the replicator, you know, we're having dinner because, 
I've carefully prepared something for you, for you yeah. to enjoy, you know? And I, I think that, that little thing says a lot about the character. And I, it's, again, it's great writing. Mm-hmm. So. The last section of the podcast each week is final thoughts or conclusions about the episode. And I think it's pretty clear that we, we both enjoyed it a lot both because of the, the character development and the, and the alternative characters and the comedic feel and just uh, the, the, way, the way the story progressed. Do you have some, some final thoughts about it? Um, I really enjoyed it. It was very different than the other episodes, but I think I'm wondering if they're going to be able to find other ways to pull off these one-off type episodes like I, I keep referring to them as holodeck type episodes and I'm wondering if if maybe the introduction of the entity and the daughter is a way for them to have these types of things later on in the series I, I'm not so sure but otherwise because I mean if that technology doesn't exist and it has been something that's, that's happened in you know in the last couple of se- last few series you know yeah. So, well, I mean, if, if we say that Strange New Worlds, in spite of the re- reimagining of the look, mm-hmm. still needs to fit in between Star Trek Enterprise and, mm-hmm. and Star Trek the original series, I mean, yeah, they don't have holodecks and things, mm-hmm. but in uh, particularly in the original series, it's the aliens who put you yeah. in an old West Arizona town yeah. or things, you know, which, which comes back to sort of the technobabble space phenomenon causes goofy yeah. side effects. You know, these, these unknown entities are, we want to learn about humanity or, or whatever sure. that are, that are putting characters into, into mm-hmm. unusual situations. That's something, I mean, it can be good episodes, but also it can be, a, a plot element or a plot formula mm-hmm. that's overused. So I think they need to have a light touch about it. The interesting mm-hmm. thing about Strange New Worlds in the modern Star Trek series is the whole season is plotted out before they mm-hmm. begin production. Yeah. And I think, uh, well, certainly the original series and probably Next Generation, when the first episodes aired, they were still producing later episodes in the season. Mm-hmm. Next Generation came along at the time that story arcs were being created, but there were, there were no such thing for, for the yeah. original series. And when the first two or three episodes were on the air, they didn't know yet what the scripts were going to be for the end of the series, but now they do. You know, the, these, these series finish filming a, a year before they're on the air because oh. the, the effects and things like that take so long. And they know... Even for an episodic series like Strange New Worlds, with the story arcs being the characters, they know beginning to end what the season is going to be before mm-hmm. they start any of the photography. It's so, it's a good model. Yeah. It's and, it's and, a good model to do that. Yeah, and and that allows planting seeds. Like you know, we've seen this book before, and I think we've seen at least hints of the cover and maybe some of the illustrations. So they knew it was going to be there, and they planted the seeds earlier. So, I love those little details like that that you can see throughout. And it, it is, it's, it's incredible amounts of production design that go into that. Or if later, later, if you go back and watch the series, you will see things knowing how it turns out. But you go back and binge the series or something like that. You'll see all these seeds planted in earlier episodes. Well, and you're looking for them. You know what I mean? I yeah. mean you, you, you encounter them and it makes it a lot more fun you know, to have that. And it, it, you feel like you're more immersed in that world too. Mike, we've talked about some of the different 
inspirations and backgrounds and contexts of, of this episode. And I couldn't help think about Joseph Campbell. You know about him. Joseph Campbell sure. was a, a scholar uh, of mythology who lived in the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And he defined creativity. He said that creativity is defined as innovation. You know, and, and we've noted, you know, the formula plots and these are, you know, this is similar to these other episodes and things. But, you know, regardless of the source or the inspiration, the, the question of whether an episode is creative or is it derivative, is it a retread, is it fre something fresh, uses familiar plot elements, uh, but in a fresh way. As Campbell defined it, that's what we look at when we say, is this a creative episode or a creative idea or not? I think that um, that this episode definitely is creative in the way, you know, everything we saw at one level was familiar, but the way they were put together and the way they were used was was innovative and, and therefore and therefore creative. And, and it made a really, a really good episode that is worth watching multiple times. Part of that comes from the script directly. Part of it comes from all these nuances of the production design, you know, the sets and the costuming and the and the and the props, and of course comes from the the, the ability of, of the actors. I, I would agree with that. I think it's compelling. We don't necessarily know that this is being this is coming from the little girl's mind, you know, and because of that, it. I was halfway into the episode before I realized, oh, well, this is the little girl, you know, again, with Campbell or with any kind of structuralist idea. The idea is that we know that structure exists. It's the variation of structure. And I think the variation of structure is great enough that it makes it really creative from the, from that standpoint. Um, because you're right, we have seen this type of thing, especially within Star Trek before. But I mean, having that big variation is what makes it great. Next week, we have the penultimate that is to say the next to the last episode of this season. The title is All Those Who Wander. Now at face value, that title seems to be a reference to J.R.R. Tolkien's Not All Those Who Wander or Lost. I've been wondering, Mike, whether the last two episodes of the season might be a two-parter. Stranger Worlds is, is structured to be an episodic season. Recent Star Trek, other Star Trek, has mostly had season-long story arcs but they still tend to have what feels like a two-parter at the end of the season for a season finale. And I'm wondering if that's going to start next week. Uh, just earlier today, as we record this, the trailer for next week's episode has just been released and not saying too much, but the Enterprise goes to rescue survivors of a Federation starship that crashes on a planet. And then all the rest of what we see in the trailer kind of has a, a, a an alien's an alien vibe, not aliens, the original alien vibe. I would guess it's probably a two-part series. Um, we don't have the series cliffhangers like we probably had years ago, you know, so much because it's, it's so uncertain that there's renewal, especially when you're doing something. And believe me, Star Trek fans would not have it if you had a series that ended with, oh, there's a cliffhanger and it's unresolved. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, I mean... I, I would say of the fandoms, Star Trek fans are the kindest of the fandoms, but I, I, I don't think they would stand for that. So I think a two-parter at the end is probably more likely. 
Yeah. And in the season-long story arcs, the end of the season is your moral to the story, is your lesson learned, is your closing the loop on the philosophy. I think in Strange New Worlds, we're lucky, and I think it's one of the reasons people like it so much, that we get messages, we get themes and morals to the story every week, mm -hmm. uh, rather than one long, drawn-out thing at the end of 10 or 12 episodes. Well, an, an easy way to tell might be, if we know the directors in advance who the director is of the final two episodes. If it's the same person, it very well could be because and I'm not so sure about Star Trek because I don't pay that close of attention, but in other series, they sometimes bring in a, a closer director, a director that can come in and yeah. really nail that final couple of episodes. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, especially series like Arrow or whatever, where yeah. you know, they, they bring John in to go ahead and shoot those at the end to go ahead and make sure that, you know, the, and there are directors like that, the ones that are the big hitters that come in at the end to make it great. So a nice way to know would be, is it the same director? Because I'm not so sure, because I don't, I think Star Trek has kind of a, a fleet of directors probably that they use throughout. Yeah, and I don't know how many of them, if you will, are on staff. Uh, Rodney and I have observed that often, if not necessarily the season finale, but if there's a big important episode yeah uh, they have jonathan frakes directed he's a director now more than an actor although he sure appeared on screen a couple of times in star trek recently but he knows the franchise so well yeah. that they often ask him to do the most important episodes in a given mm -hmm. season and likes um, the franchise i yeah. think that's the important yeah. thing is you have to not just know it but you have to really like it and he yeah. does yeah most of the directors and writers' names are names I don't recognize mm -hmm. from other from other series or, mm -hmm. or that, which is which is fine. There's there's much as, as much diversity as we see on the screen in Star Trek these days. There's a huge amount of diversity mm -hmm. in the crew behind the crew and the production staff behind. And if you just look at the names in the closing credits that do not appear to be traditional, you know, white American. Majority sure. names. Star so, Trek is really, to me, created by the, the producers and writers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to discount the importance of directors, you know, coming from a director, but I mean, I think in largely the writers and producers. Well, a good script will give a lot of guidance to the mm -hmm. director as to how the writer imagines it. And then <laughs> there's extensive pre production on these episodes before any footage is is captured and i'm sure that that is collaborative oh absolutely yeah the writer's room is really important mike i want to thank you for joining us this week oh uh, well, it's thank it's, you for having me yeah it's been this a pleasure been really fun. And, and your perspective is very interesting with with your background and also knowing star trek as as you do next week rodney will be back and we'll be talking about episode nine of strange new worlds all those who wander Keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy, or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for being here and join us again next time.